0: Hello, and welcome to episode 62 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 10 years' experience in Brazil and China. For this episode, I spoke to Guga Chakra, a commentator for the Brazilian 24 hour news channel Globo News, based in New York City. If you don't speak Portuguese, you may not know, but Guga is one of Brazil's most famous journalists. Google lives in New York, and he comments on just about all foreign news stories for Globo News. Yes, English speakers. In this case, by foreign, I mean anything outside of Brazil. Globo News is part of the Globo Empire, the most powerful television media group in Brazil. Like he'll explain, in an American context, Globo is like NBC, while Globo News is like MSNBC. He also has his own radio show on Brazil's CBN Radio and a column in the newspaper U Globo, which if I had to pick an American analog, I would say is most akin to USA Today. Guga has a massive Twitter following of more than one million people and is very recognizable for his signature shaggy hair. Before Guga was a one-man news industry, he spent years working as a reporter for newspapers in Brazil, mainly for Folha de Sao Paulo, which is like the Brazilian New York Times, and Estado de Sao Paulo which if I am going to continue my absolutely wanton generalizations, I guess I would call the most like the Washington Post in Brazil. Guga is of Lebanese descent and had a strong interest in the Middle East throughout his life, and will tell us about reporting from there on and off throughout his career. At one point, he even interviewed the Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad, which he'll tell us all about. He also reported from the earthquake in Haiti, where being Brazilian gave him a special edge. We'll talk about that, and the hair, and also what's so great about swimming in the ocean in New York in December. He's really a unique person, and certainly unlike any we've had on the podcast before. I don't always love the connotation of the word foreign, even though it's in the name of this podcast, so I love it when we can flip it around and the United States or UK or another English-speaking nation is the foreign entity, and in this case, Brazil is the home market. So now, without further ado... Here's my conversation with Guga Chakra, a commentator based in New York City, for Global News and several other publications. First off, I just want to say thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Guga.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: And to warm up a little bit, if you could just set the scene and tell us where you are geographically and also what physical space you're in. And then also a bit about what your last week of work has been like.
1: I'm the Upper West Side, on eighty third between Broadway and Amsterdam, and New York. And now I'm in the office, actually the same place that I used to be on TV. Since like the our offices are closed, they're not closed because of COVID. They are closed because of renovation. So. I'm working remote. Uh, this past week was mainly about Omicron and, and the Chilean elections as well. I know that I'm a correspondent in New York, but I'm commentator on in, in international politics. So I commented also on, on the Chilean elections, but, but it was mainly about Omicron, Omicron, and Omicron.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, I guess just to to then get into the meat of the podcast, this is mostly about telling the story of your career and how you got to where you are today. And i like to start way back at the beginning, if you could tell us where you were born and a little bit about what growing up was like, and also if you started to get interested in journalism early on.
1: I was born in São Paulo, like near Avenida Paulista, Both of my parents are doctors and my father's side is Lebanese, like both of my grandparents on my my father's side were born in Lebanon. On my mother's side, my grandfather was born in Italy and my grandmother, she's Brazilian with Portuguese roots. I have two older brothers. I grew up like the Jardins neighborhood of Sao Paulo and going to the Paulistano club I was a swimmer, then I became a water polo player. So I grew up playing water polo, was not a good student. (laughs) And in the weekends, I would go to what we call Litoral Norte, like the North Shore of Sao Paulo, where I always had a beach house in Juquei. And so I grew up between Sao Paulo and, and Juquei, so grandson of immigrants. And it's quite common in my generation, in São Paulo, I had many friends whose grandparents uh, were born in Lebanon or Syria, or Italy, uh, or are Jews from like Poland or even Syria or Germany, Russia, whatever. Uh, São Paulo is a city of immigrants, as we know. I was not a good student, as I told you. I was a more kind of athlete, but I was a huge fan of soccer. I'm Palmeiras fan. Sure. I love newspapers. Like I, I, I love to read. The sports sections since i was seven or eight years old i would read the sports sections and buy uh, sports newspapers at the time we had gazette sportiva but i would li- read the sports section of both stado and folia what like my father subscribed at the time i always loved to listen to the games in the radio and watch the shows on tv about soccer and my father always took me and my brothers to travel a lot and first, from the newspapers that I read, I moved it to the international section because of my grandparents on my father's side mainly. I was really curious about Lebanon. I was born in 1966, so when I was reading the newspaper, the, the civil war in Lebanon was still going on. And for me, it was like that's the place where my grandparents were born. And my father went to Lebanon before the war, and he went right after the war as well. And he always liked it international politics. He subscribed at both Time Magazine and Economist in Sao Paulo in the 80s and beginning of the 90s, and that was not that common at all. So I always had access to all of that, and traveling like I was able. My father took me to Europe, to the United States. After the Berlin Wall fell, he took my two older brothers to Eastern Europe and to Berlin, and then for a trip there, he didn't take me because I was the youngest one when the three of them. Okay, but <laughs> anyway, and then in the 90s, he took the family for a road trip to the Middle East. And then we went to Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, West Bank, Israel, and Egypt. We didn't go to Gaza, but we did this trip and a red light at the Middle East. I was always curious about the Middle East. And then I, I was not sure what I was going through do in my life but I was in college I was studying economy then I went to journalism I studied social sciences for a while in the end of the day I ended up in the school of journalism while I was there I went to Lebanon a few more times one of them it was like to spend almost a month in Lebanon with other Lebanese from the diaspora so I got really close to Lebanon and to the Middle East. And then I was on, on both journalism school and the economics school. Economics, I was studying at USP, University of Sao Paulo, journalism at Casper Libero. Anyway, uh, I applied for the trainee program at Folha just to see how it worked and to apply the... One year later, like there were 2000 people applying and I, I got accepted like among the 10 trainees. So I entered Folha.
0: So this is, for people who aren't familiar, Foliage of Sao Paulo, which is yes. uh, the largest newspaper in Brazil. I, I don't know if it was at the time, but... Uh...
1: No, 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 no. no. The lar- At the time, was the largest. It is still the largest in Sao Paulo. But O Globo now, like they published that this week, they became the largest in Brazil. Oh, wow. And the University, university of Sao Paulo is the main university in Brazil. And Casper Libero, it's a school of journalism, just like Emerson College would be in Boston. I know about Emerson College because I was going to study at Emerson College. My father wanted me to study in the United States, but I decided to stay in Brazil. And so I was accepted for the trainee at Folha, then I stayed at Folha, then they opened a post as correspondent in Argentina. I was still in college <laughs> and I applied and I was the only one who applied. So because I applied just to see how was how it worked like because I said I will apply now, see how it works. One, two years I will apply to go. I don't know. Like I just want to see. So then I became correspondent in Buenos Aires it was the year two thousand. Wow. And I was late in college, just for you to understand, because I failed a year in high school. I was not a good student, as I said. <laughs> I, I did one year of cursinho that you don't have in the United States, but it's a place that you prepare to go to college. Then I studied a semester of social sciences. Then I dropped it out. Then I was coming to Emerson College. Then I decided to, to travel over Europe, so I missed it another year. And then I did one year of journalism, then I dropped it out, then went to economics, anyway, like I was, uh, I went to Buenos Aires. I was correspondent of Folha in Buenos Aires. Was huge...
0: So wait, you had graduated by that point?
1: No, I was not.
0: No, okay.
1: I was still in college studying journalism, yeah. I was 23 years old.
0: So you took a year off or what?
1: Yeah, I took a year off, I was 23. Okay. Uh, and I went to Buenos Aires, I was correspondent of Folha. And was great for me it was during the crisis, not the worst part of the Argentinian crisis, but the beginning, I mean, the crisis of 2001, that was massive. <laughs> then I, I went back to Brazil, and then I decided that I was going to finish college and become a diplomat, apply for the School of Diplomacy in Brazil. Like, so I, I quit at Folio. Like I, I came back, I worked a few months at Folha. Then I quit But then a few months later, there was September 11, and Folia asked me to go back, so I went back. And I stayed in Folia until 2005, when I came to the U.S. for my master's at Columbia University. I applied for Columbia, Georgetown, and the U.B. American University of Beirut. And while I was at Folia, I went many times to the Middle East again, to Lebanon, to Israel, to Syria, and to Egypt other times, but mainly to Lebanon. But in Israel, I spent a while, like more than a month. I did a course at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem on the Knesset, on the formation of the Knesset, the Israel Parliament. And also uh, I spent a while among the Palestinian Christians. My family, I am am an atheist, but uh, my family on my father's side, my, my grandfather was a Greek Orthodox Christian, Greek Orthodox and my grandmother, Christian, Greek, Catholic in Lebanon. So I spent a while with the Palestinian Christians trying to understand that, mainly Greek Orthodox Christians, to understand how was to live there, how they felt on the Israeli side, the Palestinian side. They were Palestinians, but among their Muslim friends. And and I wrote an article at the time for Folha. So I went back and then I came to the US to study at Columbia University. My master's was in international affairs, but a concentration in Middle Eastern studies. I had classes with Rashid Halid and other major professors, Paul Strabulsi and others, uh, on Middle East. And when I graduated, I decided to go back to the Middle East. I was not employed, so I would I spent a, a year going to the Middle East and coming back to New York, writing freelance for a study, sometimes to foliage, to both of them. And then after a year, I made a deal with Stalin. Then I spent a whole year in the Middle East traveling. So Lebanon, again, Lebanon, Syria. First semester was mainly Lebanon, Syria. Second semester, like I went to Israel right before the first Gaza war. Then I spent a while in Israel, then Turkey, Egypt, because I couldn't go back to Lebanon, Syria, because I had the Israeli stamp in my passport. And... Then I came back to the U.S. I became correspondent for Estado in New York, and that was 2009 already, and was during the recession. And by 2012, Global News invited me for a show there, but just as a guest. And after the show, they liked, it, and they asked me if I wanted to stay. Like it was my first time, and I went there just as a guest. And then I stayed. And after 2013 I quit study, stayed only on global news. I I stayed in Stud as a blogger, but not, not as a reporter. And then in since 2017, I moved my blog to Globo, o Globo newspaper. Stado is the other major newspaper in Sao Paulo. I moved my blog to o Globo and also became a columnist at o Globo. So yes, that's my story. And I'm here since then and now I have a show on CBN as well. And after a while, I started because Global News, the cable news, TV for Global, is like MSNBC, and Global, is is NBC. So, in the beginning, I was only on Global News. Then I became a commenter commentator on Global TV as well.
0: Sure, on uh, the nightly news programs, that sort of thing.
1: Yes, uh, Jornal da Globo, the latest one, because Jornal Nacional, they don't have a commentator. Like it's more right. news; is more like. NBC Night and the so it's different. Only Jornal da Globo, they have more commentators. And Bom Dia Brasil, but that's early in the morning, and because of the time zone, it's harder. So I do, I do Jornal da Globo.
0: Yeah, wow, that's a lot of stuff, and uh, your career took off really quickly. Out of curiosity, did you know any Arabic from growing up, or did you pick it up in the Middle East, or do you speak Arabic? I'm just curious about languages.
1: I know how the words, I know how to conjugate the verbs, But the thing is, growing up, no. My father doesn't speak well Arabic. His parents would speak to him in Portuguese. He speaks French, Portuguese, English. But his Arabic is not good. In my case, so first problem I studied the Fuscha, the the modern standard Arabic. That's not the same Arabic that people speak. It's the written Arabic. So I lost a lot of time on that. But I learned the grammar, I, I would say. But then when you go to Lebanon, you have the colloquial. Levantine Arabic or the Lebanese the Syrian Lebanese dialect and the Levantine dialect and it's actually easier than the modern standard Arabic but it's, it's different So I would try and I would try to ask questions to people and talk and they would answer to me in, in English or French that's Lebanon. Most of the, the people that I would interact in Lebanon they would speak or English or French but English most of them, and my friends, they, my Lebanese friends, they, they all went to AUB, American University of Beirut. They even speak like English to each other. There are some Lebanese who prefer to speak French than Arabic, especially among the Maronite Christians. And so it's different. Like they they speak what they call the Sava, So a mix of the three languages. In Syria, yes, like I would be able to try to practice more, but no, I don't speak fluently Arabic. That's it. and also I, I lost a lot in the past few years. Since like I used to go to Lebanon every year, but the last year I went was twenty nineteen, two thousand nineteen. I didn't go this year and the year before because of the pandemic. Before that, I would go every year to Lebanon to visit and like I like to be in the Middle East.
0: Yeah! Wow. And it sounds like you speak some, you obviously speak English perfectly, and uh, Portuguese, and...
1: Yeah, my, my best language, my best language is by far Spanish. no, oh, no right. Spanish, I, I, not Portuguese, for sure, like, for Portuguese is my language, but like, I like to speak Spanish, like, I love to live in Argentina. I still like, love that country. It's, like, Lebanon, it's my ancestors' homeland, and Italy, and Portugal, and Brazil is my country, but and they are, the United States is the country that they chose to leave, but Argentina it's a country that I had nothing to do, but it's a country that I really, really love.
0: I mean, it all sounds so easy in retrospect. I mean, uh, did you take to journalism naturally, would you say?
1: The things that like, regarding the newspaper, I always wanted to be a correspondent, so I, I was able to become a correspondent. I would say that I was expecting that would take longer, especially when like I went to Argentina. I was in college. TV, I never like. I never planned it to be on TV, so it was not weird, but like it was a surprise, and I, I fell in love with TV. So I, I like more TV than newspaper today. To work, for sure, like to, to really, I still love. I'm, I'm a newspaper guy, so I grew up on newspapers, but. I fell in love, and I think I'm better on TV than on newspapers.
0: Sure, yeah. And uh, just to get some sense of what your work was like in the Middle East, did you write a lot of features? what, what was uh, what kind of stories were you writing? Were you writing a lot of breaking news?
1: More features. more features, but during the Gaza wars, breaking news, but the Gaza war, uh, breaking news and Israeli election, sides that was mainly features so. Uh, the one I told you like staying with the Christians in Palestine uh, mm-hmm. trying to find a Jew in Damascus going to South Lebanon to the Hyan prison so this kind of feature I liked it a lot so I, I never liked war for example uh, in Syria uh, I wanted to know Syria I liked that country so uh, I went to Malula and Sanaya, uh, both of those cities, like this Spikara, Mike. They're Christian villages in Syria. So I wanted to know more about that. How is the life of the Iraqi refugees in Syria? Uh, that was before the Syrian war. I interviewed Bashar al-Assad as well. Oh wow! But I wanted to know more about the country. So the Syrian soccer tournament—it kept going even during the war. So this kind of stories I, I like it a lot, especially maybe again because of my roots. I like to understand better the Oriental Christians because usually you, you, hear, you hear a lot about the Islamic society in the Middle East or the Jews regarding Israel, and you don't hear much about the Christians, and so yeah, I want to know better about that. So. The Maronites, the Greek Orthodox, the Greek Catholics, the Coptic Christians. Uh, Or in Egypt, like a feature, for example, Egypt has this tradition of sports clubs, social sports clubs, like Sao Paulo, Cairo and Sao Paulo. And that, for me, is really amazing because that's not common over the world, a place that you go. You have restaurants, tennis courts, swimming pools, soccer fields, and you have that in Cairo and Sao Paulo. Why? And then you have a neighborhood in Sao Paulo that's called... Jardim Europa that was built by the seed company from London and then you realize that the same a neighborhood called Garden City Jardins Garden City in Cairo that was built by the seed company from London so I so like this kind of stuff is the the kind of feature that I like it to write
0: sure and i mean i've only been in brazil since 2017 and in that period i mean newspapers uh, really don't have any correspondents to speak of you know uh, some yeah. freelancers things like that these days but back when they did have a lot of resources i mean was there a big focus like do you find that when brazilians read international news they're more interested in certain areas like the middle east because there's so much immigration from there Um, And was that a focus of, were more correspondents there than, say, I don't know, like the BBC has a lot of people in Africa because of historic colonial ties, for example. Is Brazil more focused on the Middle East and certain other areas, would you say?
1: Like at that time, yes, it was because you have a huge uh, Syrian Lebanese community and you have a Jewish community, uh, especially in Sao Paulo and Rio as well. So there was correspondence in Folia had until a few years ago in Jerusalem. Global had in Jerusalem as well. The newspapers used to have correspondence. Uh, They still have New York and Washington, D.C., Buenos Aires, Paris, London, Geneva. In Geneva, because it's the WTO, FIFA, and so it's important for Brazil to displace. In Africa... Global News has one now. Global has one. Vinicius is based in, in Johannesburg. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah But you had Osnaway or someone, but not. It was not common in China. There was a time that the three major newspapers had correspondents. Now only Global has a correspondent in China, Portugal, and Italy. Sometimes, and now they don't have any more. In those countries and the other places, mainly freelancers.
0: Let's see, I wanted to ask about going into you know 24 hour cable news. You're the first person I've spoken to who is on 24 hour cable news, and it's like the ultimate news hole. It's just so much time that always needs to be filled. And you know, when I'm in the office back before COVID, we had global news on. All day, every day, like the songs of the commercials would like get stuck in my head and things like that. And so obviously, you know, I've seen you on TV a lot. And it just seems like the amount of time you need to fill is insane. I was just trying to get some sense of how much time in say a busy week. Do you spend on live TV? And is it exhausting? How do you find it? Have you gotten used to it? Is it, you know, normal now?
1: like there is a show that came from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. almost every day. So this one is two hours. I'm not talking for two hours because there is a person, the, the anchorman, is in Rio. Then you have a commentator in Brasilia, one in São Paulo, one in Rio, sometimes two in São Paulo, one in Rio, one in New York, and one in Buenos Aires. So like I'm not talking all the time, but my face is there all the time. And you have the reporters who also in Brazil and Sao Paulo, Rio and other parts of Brazil who would also enter to give some news and then we would comment. But then it, it's it's two hours. The other shows I only enter uh, have to be uh, online, like uh, 10, 15 minutes before it starts. And then I comment for 15 to 10 minutes. So that's, that's not hard. And I also have a show, Global News International, that's every Sunday, then it's for 45 minutes, and I'm one of the anchors with another one in Rio. So then also, like, then it's 45 minutes non-stop. So I don't know, like, it depends on the week. But if it's a breaking news week, with international news, you know, American election or Afghanistan or whatever, then, I'm like, I'm almost the whole day on TV, like, from morning to night, uh, almost non-stop. But sometimes next year will be Brazil, elections in Brazil. There will be days that probably they won't need me. So for sure in the election day, they won't need me because it will be a huge election in Brazil. So it depends a lot on the day, but usually it's like that. And also I work more on prime time. So in Brazilian time from 6 p.m., to midnight.
0: And uh, you, how do you balance that with also being a columnist and also going on CBN?
1: So CBN, uh, so I, I tape my show Friday mornings or lunchtime. So it's easier because I'm usually not on TV on that time. My blogger writes when I have time. And they column it's Wednesday. So I kind of prepare, I try to leave Wednesday afternoon free and then I have time to write. But the things that I, I don't know if, you, if you're like me, but I, I know what I'm going to write before I start to write. So I have all the idea in my head. So the amount of time that I spend writing like in the front of the computer is not long, but like I'm thinking about what I will write when I'm swimming, when I'm walking my dog, I don't know, like it's the idea comes not what I like in the front of the computer. So I have an idea, like I know what I'm going to write beforehand. So today I wrote, like the column on today, I wrote uh, about Chile, but saying that Chile has nothing to do with, that Boric has nothing to do with other Latin American presidents that people call left in Latin America, like Maduro Ortega were actually dictators in my view, or Castillo and Lopez Obrador, like Boric would be more, more like the left in Portugal or Spain. So it's different. So like Maduro and Castillo, they, they are against gay marriage, they're homophobic, so uh, it's hard to compare Boric to those guys. So I wrote about that. I wanted to have my view that's different from some people who keep saying that Chile and Chile has nothing to do with Venezuela. Also, like it's two different countries and this thing that happened now that people say, oh, you're going to stay like Venezuela. And sometimes now they say that <laughs> that Brazil might become Argentina. And I always say, no, that's better. They have numbers better than Brazil in criminality and in per capita income or their human development index. So on healthcare, everything in Argentina is still better than Brazil, even though they're in a crisis for the past 50 years.
0: And yeah, I'm familiar with all the, you know, Brazil is going to become Venezuela or X or Y or Z country. And yeah, I mean, the left is a bunch of different things, but a lot of people, you know, uh, Bolsonaro certainly tends to lump them all together a lot of the time. I did want to ask uh, how you found the transition from news reporting to more opinion and commentary because you had been news reporting and then you not only switched to switch mediums to TV but you also kind of switched to opinion and commentary how was how that change for you
1: The transition was not hard because I had a blog before that on Estado that I would give a kind of my opinion or do analysis so That part was not hard, but I miss a little bit reporting. So, especially like in the Middle East, in in New York less so, but in the Middle East, yes, I miss reporting. And even now that there was the tornado in Kentucky and they saw some of the reporters of Global, three of them went there to cover the tornado. And like, Daniel, you think, oh, I wanted to do this story. And that's like what, means being a journalist, be, be there. So I miss this sometimes, to be on the field.
0: Sure. Let me see. Do you get to do any reporting on your Sunday show, or is that mostly commentary no. also?
1: No. Commentary and analysis, but a lot of interview, like I interview a lot of people. So it's, you also have that. We always have someone to interview, or sometimes two people to interview. So that I like, to ask questions actually. It's
0: nice. Yeah. And uh, the one thing, I had some friends who came by to see our place since I just moved to Sao Paulo. And uh, I said, Oh, I'm going to talk to Google Chakra. And uh, the, the first thing they said was something about some beef you have going with a right wing guy, Rodrigo Constantino, which I guess I had seen a little bit, but hadn't seen too much of it. And I I mean, not just about this particular argument, but I'm just curious, I mean, if you find yourself in the constant target of arguments and things like that, and online, I mean, things have become much more contentious in Brazil. Uh, I mean, do you have to deal with a lot of trolls? Do you have to, do you seek out these fights? How do you approach it?
1: The the thing is, I don't care much like when people attack me. And it's interesting because usually when they attack me, they don't attack my person. They might attack the professional, and they do that for my work, but they don't attack my person. And in Brazil, it's very common to attack women journalists, and then they attack their persons. So I think it's much worse for most of my friends who are women and journalists than it is to me if someone calls me oh you're fake news or i don't know like oh, you support someone i don't know like you are wrong about something that's okay i i really don't care but the people don't attack my person but i see fr- some friends of mine what they do with those women journalists is really really bad so what well, the way they attack Patricia Campos Melo, Vera Magalhães, Miriam Leitão. It's much worse. Much worse. So, in my case, it, it, it's fine. And I accept for me, it's more like, I actually don't care if someone says a bad thing about me on Twitter or even write a column on, on do a YouTube video about me just criticizing me. It's a video game. So, I'm, <laughs> I don't care, like, but it depends a lot on the person. So I am like that. I never like cared much. I, I only care if they say that I did something that I didn't. Then I try to explain that I didn't do that. So, but besides that, it, it's it's fine. Mm-hmm.
0: And I mean, I think this isn't going too far to say, but you're you're famous in Brazil. You're maybe one of the most famous journalists in Brazil. You have you know, more than a million Twitter followers. You must get recognized a lot when you're in Brazil because of your hair and things like that. But Mm -hmm. I imagine in New York, you know, people in New York probably aren't watching global news a lot. They might well have no idea who you are. Is that really weird that you don't, that I'm sure you come back to Brazil and people recognize you all the time and people don't know who you are in New York? Is that strange?
1: The weird is in Brazil. Here like, I'm just like any other person, and I really like that here in New York. In Brazil, it's nice at the same time to be recognized, but it's strange. Like, you are there, and someone comes, you never saw, and the person comes, start talking to you. They are always, nicer. I never had a problem with anyone. Then you take the picture, like, you smile. Like, I always try to be polite. Ask the name of the person, where the person is from, and that's it. But I really feel comfortable here in New York. Like, I always see Brazilians who recognize me, but among the the other New Yorkers, I like to be in the subway and no one knows who I am or like uh, when I go to swim or whatever. It's nice.
0: Yeah, and uh, there's a certain benefit to kind of not being recognized as a journalist.
1: Yeah, it's... It's good because I have both sides. Because when I go to Brazil, yes, people recognize me. It's nice, but like, I don't know how it would be if I lived in Brazil, if I would like that. But here, I mean, so I come back to New York and then it's normal.
0: Let's see. And I, I can't, you know, not ask about it. What's the deal with the hair? Do you have anything to say about your hair? I know like a lot of Brazilians, if I mention your name, will uh, immediately talk about your hair. How do you feel about that?
1: No, but the things that, like, it's strange if you're on TV, but outside TV, there are people who use the same style. It was more common in the 80s. If you look, the soccer teams of Brazil, Argentina, Italy, it was common to use this kind of so probably out of fashion. But at that time, even the tennis players would use the same style of hair or the Formula One drivers, if you see Piquet powder, frost, or they would you. so it's more, from the time I always use it, and I swim, so like sometimes it stays like that, but on TV people, usually they cut their hair, they have shorter hairs, so on TV is more like a contrast when you look to the others, and also I'm growing my, my bird now, but just for a while, I will shave after New Year's, and it's gray, it's not black, the bird,
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, I just saw you on global just now. Looking good. Looking good. <laughs> and that that makes sense about the hair because uh, that you're a swimmer because yeah, it does kind of remind me of my my two brothers were competitive swimmers. And yeah, their hair was kind of like that. <laughs> For the next part of the interview, I usually ask two questions. I think I'll I'll just ask one. Usually I ask about a story that got away, but it's been a while since you've been a reporter, and uh, I don't know that you need to rehash a story that got away more than a decade ago, unless there's something that comes to mind. Uh, Is there any big story over the course of your career that you weren't able to do that you really wanted to do?
1: A story that I wasn't able to do? I wanted to be the Tahrir square during the Tahrir protests in 2011, during the Arctic Spring, I didn't go, they didn't send me. And that like, sometimes like, I almost quit my job and went by myself. I I can't believe that I wasn't there. Like, it was uh, the place to be imagined that you as a journalist also wanted to be there. I've never seen a a thing like the Tahrir Square in, in Cairo in January 2011. That was Amazing to saw that revolution happening in a square, even though afterwards was not what they expected. But at those days, it must be amazing to cover that story, to see a dictatorship falling with the people in the streets in a no-violent protest uh, in the major square in a major country. I think that's unique. The Berlin Wall was too young. So after Berlin Wall would be the Tahri Squares. Also because like there were people killed, but I mean like it's not like September eleven. Like if I say I wanted to cover September eleven. September eleven was a sad day. Tahri Square, it was the Arab Spring, so they fell off dictatorship. So it was I wanted to cover that story.
0: Sure, yeah, it was a huge story. Yeah. And that reminds me, I was going to ask earlier when you were going through your uh, biography, you said you don't like to cover war. Did you cover war at any points? Did you have to do the flak jacket running around sort of thing while people were shooting and that sort of thing? Or did you not do any of that reporting?
1: No, No, not to that point. I covered the first Gaza war in 2009. Israel didn't allow the journalists to enter Gaza during the war, so I stayed in the Israeli side. Yes, there were rockets that they were launching towards the Israeli side, like Yisderot, Ashdod, Ashkelon. There was no rocket near myself, but I was in that area, but I was never in risk. My life was never in risk at that point, but I was covering the war on the Israeli side. And after the ceasefire, uh, Israel authorized the journalists to enter Gaza so I entered Gaza after the ceasefire so I saw the after war I was not in Gaza during the war so it's different so that's the war that I covered and I went to Syria I also during the Syrian war but but I went to Damascus and around Damascus and there was no major conflict at the time that I was there in Damascus so it was not that I was, I was in a country that there was a war going on, but not in the place that I was. So it was the beginning of the war, 2011 still. So there were more conflicts in homes, and I went to Dara. In Dara, there was war going on. It was kind of dangerous in in Dara because...
0: Sorry, where is this?
1: Dara is near the border with Jordan. Okay. Okay. it was where the uprising against Assad started. It was not a hundred percent safe, but it went to control of the position, and then the Assad took control again a few weeks before I went there. So, but it was stable when I was there, so people were not firing shots. Stable, I mean, it could started again when I was there, but didn't start. started a few weeks later. So I think that was the, the most dangerous place I, I, I've been. Like, the major risk, I was, like, closer to war. But never, like, war, war, like, people shooting and I'm nearby. No, that I never was.
0: Sure, yeah. And, I mean, I personally... I mean, war reporting, conflict reporting, never really appealed to me. I would say I know a lot of people it does appeal to as journalists, and a lot of people who want to go to war zones. So I was just curious uh, what you didn't like about it, if the...
1: because it's sad, like it's sad on, on. I don't want to see Lebanon or see like in Lebanon, and new mean journalists wanted like were there to cover war. I said, look, if there is war, they are going to destroy Beirut. Why, like, it's it's not a thing that I want to see to destroy the city that I, I really love. So it, it didn't make sense for me. I liked Syria before the war. So why, why would I like to see war? It's sad, but I think it's really important to cover war, but I don't like wars. And I wrote that before, that, like, my dream was to cover the like a peace agreement between Israel and Palestine. That I would love to cover Uh, because I want to see peace in that part of the world, in the Levant. What I mean the Levant is Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria. And that's the part of the Middle East I like. I don't like the Gulf countries. I don't like those dictatorships. I don't like Dubai. I don't like Abu Dhabi or Doha. I always liked the Levant, the Eastern Mediterranean countries. And also Turkey. You can put Turkey together. So from Egypt, from Alexandria to Istanbul. So I like that Mediterranean, those countries. Like my dream was to do a, a trip from Alexandria all the way to Istanbul. stopping Port Said, in Tel Aviv, in Haifa, in Aharia in Tir, in Beirut it Sidon Beirut, Tripoli, Tartus, uh, Latakia and all the way to uh, near and all the way to Istanbul. So like I've been to most of those places, but not like in, in a road trip. So uh, so that's why like uh, I want to see Aleppo in its prime. I don't want to see Aleppo in a point of war. I don't know if you understood, but that's what I mean. Like, I wanted to cover the good things about those countries. But those countries have a lot of bad news and I have to cover, and it's really important to cover.
0: Right. No, that that makes sense to me. Let's see. And then next I want to ask about a story that you're proud of. It can be from any time in your career. And just if you could walk me through how you did it. The I guess it's the story behind the story.
1: I think the most important story I did was to interview Bashar al-Assad in Damascus because it was the one that needed more effort from myself. Like uh, I started going to Syria after graduate. I went other times before, but as a journalist I, after 2011 and I would go to Syria and I would get in touch with some ministers or other people. And I always asked if it was a yeah, possible to interview Assad and try and try and try. I was never able to do that. And then it was before the war uh, that interviewed him. And then one day in 2010, like in the here in the UN, I was living in New York, I would ask the Syrian ambassador at the UN. And then one day they said, yeah, yeah, he he's going to give you an interview in 10 days. It's going to be in Damascus. I said, wow, And then I I, I had to go to Damascus and I had a wedding in Brazil at that time, like I was in New York. Uh I had to go to Sao Paulo and I went to the wedding. I left the wedding straight to the airport. I flew to Dubai, Dubai to Damascus. And then they picked me up at the airport. At the same day I arrived, it was the interview. I was able to go to the hotel and then shower everything. And then I went to interview. A dictator, like it's crazy. Like when you think about, it, like yeah. the guys, is is a dictator. And, and I went there, and uh, before the interview, I was talking to one of his advisors, uh Hussana Shaban, who is a major advisor of Assad and was, was of his father. When we were talking and about like, she was asking a lot about Israel. The but I went there and about my roots in Lebanon. And then someone came to, oh, he's ready. They put me in a car in the same complex. And they drove me to a house. It's not his house because he doesn't live in the palace. But it was a house. And then when the car stopped, this giant guy who looks like a, a giraffe <laughs> uh, opens the door. And it's Bashar al-Assad. He opened the door. He's shy and nerd totally nerd, it's weird, like he's nerd, it's not like when I, I I see people talking about, I don't know, other dictators, Fidel, Saddam or Gaddafi, it's, it's a different kind of personality. And Assad is, is a nerd, and he's a, and also a medical doctor, and he, he's well-dressed, he speaks very well English, we seated there, he answered all questions. It was before the war, but like, I was able to ask him questions about the lack of democracy in Syria. He answered the question. He said that he was starting by opening the economy, and he said that Syria was not prepared, and I could confront him on that. I asked him about the Syrian interventions in Lebanon that Syria was accused of many crimes in Lebanon. He's smart, you know, he's a politician. like. He, so he doesn't answer the, the question. But he was never upset and was amazing. He was able to see the whole team of Brazil in the World Cup of 1982. And he said, and that's even more strange. That was a big fan of Socrates. And Socrates was a soccer player of Corinthians and the Brazilian national team. Who is famous? Because Socrates was a medical doctor, and graduated from the University of São Paulo. He was a really smart guy, who was also uh, an activist for democracy. And there was the Democracia corinthiana, and like it's strange that the dictator had as his major idol in soccer uh, or in sports. Yeah. According to him, I think like if I was Argentinian, he would say that he was a big fan of King. <laughs> uh, like, but he said that he was a major fan of Socrates. And it's true he knew all the players of 1982. So, Which, by the way, it was one of the best Brazilian, or the best national teams of any country ever, even though it didn't win a World Cup. But was an amazing team. So that's, I think, like the most important work of journalism I did. And also... Then the coverage of the earthquake in Haiti, but that's different.
0: Yeah. Before we move on to that, I mean, how how long did you talk to Bashar al-Assad and how...
1: More than an hour.
0: How do you go from democracy? How do you go from democracy to to soccer?
1: But he wanted to talk more. He wanted to talk more about the Golan Heights and also myself. That was 2010. It was before the the Arab Spring. So... Was a time that Bashar really wanted to negotiate with Israel. And he said that he was really close to a deal with Ehud Olmert and Erdogan, like it's Omar. Erdogan was mediating a, a negotiation between him and Omar. He said that there was a time that he was in Nistam, in, in Ankara and Erdogan was talking to Omar on one side of the line, on, on the throne with him, Assad beside Erdogan. He said that he was really close. To a deal with Israel, he even explained it to me how it was going to be the deal. He was really desperate for a deal with Israel. Like that, it's weird. Like sometimes, like in that some people who follow better Syria in the U.S. they know more about that. But sometimes people don't know how close the Syrians and the Israelis were. But then all blew up in the Gaza war because Erdogan got pissed off with Omar because. He didn't know about, like, the Israel offense again, about, like, that Israel would going to war against Hamas. And anyway, like, so there was never peace, and now we are really far away. But he wanted to make peace at that time. And also you have to remember, at that time, Assad was really close to Sarkozy, the president of France. He went to France. He had dinner with Sarkozy and Carla Bruni. He was close also to Brad Pitt and... Angelina Jolie, they would go to Damascus, (laughs) to Nancy Pelosi and John Kerry, John Kerry would be really close to Bashar al-Assad, so it was a different time, people were expecting him, uh, Hillary Clinton that he would be able to open Syria, and who knows like if there was nowhere to spring, I don't think that he would open Syria, because it's not how it works there like it's, if he tried, he wouldn't be in power but that, that's the story, like the interview with Bashar. And many Americans were, were in Damascus at the time, young Americans, studying Arabic, because it, it was cheaper. And as I told you, like, it, it was much better than Beirut or Cairo, because you, they would live in the old city of Damascus. That's great. And they would pay $500, $400 a month for the Arab course in the University of Damascus, while in Beirut was two, 3000 it was the same kind, the same dialect, like with different accents, but the same dialect as Lebanon, that's the Levantine Arabic. That's the coolest one, so.
0: Mm-hmm. And where was the interview published?
1: Uh, it started in Sao Paulo, the newspaper.
0: Gotcha. And, I mean, uh, having talked to him and him being this kind of nerdy guy and all that, I mean, were you now knowing what you know happened next? I mean... Did it give you any insight into, you know? Did it help your commentary the fact that you had met him this one time?
1: Yes, no Syria as well helped me a lot because people like and also I saw that a lot in the United States they didn't understand Syria. They got right that it was a major dictatorship that was on one side that like Assad was really 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 bad. That like the, the coverage was right. What they got wrong was the Syrian opposition, what they thought that had the support of the majority of the population in Syria. That's not true. There are many people who supported Assad, even though he was a dictator. They supported the dictatorship, just like many people in Chile supported Pinochet. Many people in Argentina supported the dictatorship in Argentina. So many people in Syria would support Assad, Sometimes because they were minorities like Christians, Druze, or Alawites. Sometimes because they were afraid of the opposition. Because there were people in the opposition who were Democrats, many people, especially in the beginning. But after a while, most of the opposition became linked to jihadi groups, the Islamic State, or Haitha al sham Jaysh al-Islam, Haitha al-Shan that close to Al-Qaeda, so they were afraid of those jihadi groups. It's not like the opposition in Syria, they were all nice democrats, Democrat guys. There were people like that, but there were a lot of bad people killing many Syrians. So I think sometimes the coverage got right, the Assad side in the way that they knew that he was killing people. He, He committed crimes against humanity, atrocities, so he used chemical weapons. So they got all this right, but sometimes when, like, I followed some of the American and the European media, it looked that the, the other side was all the nice people that wanted to install democracy in Syria, while most of the fighters, and I mean the fighters, you cannot, as I told you, that would, there were a lot of people in Damascus and Aleppo who were activists for democracy even before the war, and some lawyers, professors, intellectuals, or you can count on them. But at the same time, those are not the same people as the fighters on the other side, who are most of them jihadists, like close to to terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. So that's helping me know in Syria to understand and talking to people in Syria, to understand the war. That was a war between a dictatorship on one side and jihadis on the other side. And the only way out was to leave Syria. That's why you had so many refugees. Because if I was Syrian at that time and a young Syrian, like are you going to fight for an army, fight for a dictatorship? Are you going to fight with jihadis? Or are you just going to give up and leave? I would leave. I would I would do just like the millions of Syrians who became refugees all over the world. It's sad, but that's what I would do.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, did you write a book about Syria?
1: Uh, I started writing. I've never finished. I'm still working on that.
0: Sure, sure. I mean, uh, you do so many things. I, I imagine, yeah, writing a book on top of it's hard.
1: Yeah, because that's a problem, because like I, I am on the on the breaking news every day. And try to stop and really do, because do just a book. Like if I want to write a book like about Syria, there has to be a good book. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense in my view. To have a book with my articles also doesn't make sense because they're dated. So like it wouldn't make much sense also. So who knows, maybe I will finish the book. But for now, I don't think so.
0: Sure, yeah. I mean, the story keeps going, so I'm sure a book about Syria would still make sense, you know, five, ten years, so a long time from now. And otherwise, yeah, otherwise, next up is the lightning round. But did you want to say something about the earthquake in Haiti first? I'm not sure if you're short for time, but uh, if if you have time.
1: Well, the, the earthquake, it's like that. The thing about being a journalist, I was in New York. It was in January, it January, was... A nice weather that day. It was not cold. And then, like, I received the breaking news. Earthquake in Haiti. But sometimes you have earthquakes that no one dies. So you just, like, wait and see. But then it started to say dozens of dead, hundreds of dead. And then I called Brazil. I said, look, I want to go. And they said, yes, you can go. do see what's the easiest way. It was a weekday, uh, let's say Tuesday or Monday, Monday night. And then I took the first flight next morning, JetBlue flight, you remember, to Santo Domingo in Dominican Republic. I was going for a start, but a friend of mine from Folha, Janaína, went with me. And then we got there. There were many journalists in the flight. And then we got together. We decided to pay for a charter flight to take all of us to Haiti. And we went to Haiti. I didn't have a place to stay. I just knew that there was a Brazilian base for the UN there. I so, told we arrived there and we are going to start working and we are going to get by the end of the day, early night at the base. And then we try to send the article from there. They probably have internet. And then we will sleep by the door there. I don't know, or come back to the airport. We don't, we didn't know. So, and then I spent a week there, like and was really, really sad. But when you are there, you don't realize the impact. Like I realized everything when I left with two other journalists and a driver by car back to Dominican Republic. And the driver started to cry when we crossed the border. And then I started to cry as well. And like, I, uh, it was hard And when I came back to New York for weeks, remember everything I saw, uh, it was hard. The earthquake was hard. Much harder than, than I would expect, like. The country was destroyed, like the everything, it was sad.
0: Mm-hmm. And I mean, that was a very heavily covered event. I'm just curious if if you think Brazilian media covered it any differently than other media, American media, or if...
1: The earthquake?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: We had an advantage because there were many Brazilians there, all the soldiers, because Brazil was the largest armed force in Haiti because we were with the peace forces of the UN and Brazil had the leadership. So, like, there were thousands of Brazilians, officials, soldiers, that we could talk, that could take us to the places. So, and then you had Viva Rio, that's an NGO from Rio. And also because we, we have this view, like, it's easier for the Brazilian to understand sometimes. Like, okay. Brazil has many things in common with Haiti. So, yes, I think not very different. Like, I mean, by the part of the tragedy was not very different, but we had this access to the Brazilian officials and soldiers who were living there. So when you talk to a major who's been living in Haiti for months, so the guy can explain to you. So he understands what's going on.
0: Right. Yeah. And in a situation like that where it's, uh, you know, chaotic and communication is difficult, You know, finding internet and things like that. I mean, it's essential to have people who know what's going on, who you can talk to.
1: The internet, we were able to have only in in the base. Outside the base, you didn't have access to internet. So at the same time, we would go to the street during the day. I would leave 7 a.m. because there was also the time zone. So I needed as long as possible on the streets. So we would go back to the base around 4. That was like, I don't remember, it was 6 in Brazil, and then write the article, send the article to Brazil, and then at night, not every night, but a few nights, we would go, then only if the soldiers were safer, like we couldn't go by ourselves, because the base was not too close to the center, I would go at night with them to see. The, the country and go because I couldn't sleep I would sleep for three three hours less than that all the journalists would sleep on the same tent there were like thirty journal Brazilian journalists sleeping together so there was also this friendship everything that we would work together there there was no competition among ourselves because like you don't compete in a situation like that you help each other so I was even cameraman for Globo uh, for a while for a, a reporter from Globo one of
0: the days. Yeah, wow. And I know, certainly for the military, it was a very formative experience. I know one of my colleagues wrote a story about after Marão became vice president, and he's a general, and looking at, you know, because Brazil hasn't fought in wars in a long time. And so, you know, Haiti was the only hands-on experience a lot of Brazilian generals and other officials have.
1: Yeah, it's true. And some of them, there were like, yeah, it was mainly Haiti. Some of them there was in Congo, Santos Cruz, I think you went to Congo, but there were few Brazilians in Congo, I think, and Lebanon as well. There, there was the, Brazil was in, on the UNIFILD, The Brazil was part of the Unifield the, the peace force for the border between Israel and Lebanon.
0: Okay, well, yeah, I mean, those two big stories Next up is the lightning round. It's faster paced questions. Do you feel ready?
1: Yes, you can start.
0: So, the first question is what is a publication you read to keep up on the beat you cover? But since you cover such a broad range of topics, is there some must read publication that you think not everybody reads you'd like to shout out that you think does a particularly good job in covering what it covers?
1: I like to read the L'Orient Le Jour, the newspaper from Lebanon. Uh, There was another newspaper that I liked a lot, The Daily Star, that they just closed because of the financial crisis in Lebanon, but both newspapers were good to follow the Middle East. I like the Israeli media. I'm a subscriber of Haritz. I like the Times of Israel. And I also read the Jerusalem Post. I don't read in Hebrew, so I read what's available in English, but I think it's really important to try to read the Israeli and the Lebanese media. And the other countries in the region, they are dictatorships, so it's hard to have a free media that you could read. And I also like the All Monitor. It's a, a, a publication. It's for free. You can subscribe for the newsletter. And they cover, like, all countries in the Middle East really well. It's not feature. It's m- more... Uh, political, but it's it's good. I would recommend those.
0: Sure. What was the last one, L, L Monitor?
1: El Monitor, yes. A-L, uh, Monitor, M-O-N-I-T-O-R.
0: Cool. Next is, what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun?
1: Well, for fun, I would say the, the New Yorker and The Atlantic. Some of their articles... Not often. Some of them are related to my work, but some features I like to read because they have nothing to do with what I work. So I like to read them just to enjoy. And I like hard talk from BBC, but that's related to my work.
0: Hard talk from BBC.
1: Yeah, BBC is the channel that I watch during the day. Yes. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. Cool.
1: At night, at night I watch the American ones, but in the afternoon, BBC.
0: Gotcha. And then what is the best journalistic article or piece, can be in whatever medium, written TV, what is the best journalistic piece you've consumed recently?
1: Oh, I will tell you, it's is the one on the New York Times about the correspondent his coverage of the withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan, but on the personal level and also talking about everything.
0: Sorry, do you remember who this is?
1: Yes, I have his name. I don't, uh, I saved it, the article, so I will tell you. Inside the Fall of Kabul. It's by Matthew, Matthew Aikins. Matthew M A T T H I E U Aikins. A I K I N S. It was really, really. Like, you cannot stop. It has to become a book. I'm saying even through your WhatsApp now.
0: Great. Okay, yeah. I'll throw, And I'll throw up links to all the stories, your stories, and other ones you mentioned in the podcast description. So people should check it out. Is there any particular subject matter you geek out about that isn't related to your job?
1: Yeah, I have this crazy thing, like I'm a cold water swimmer and long and open water swimmer as well. So yeah, like I was always an open water swimmer. Like I was a water polo player, then uh, I became an open water swimmer. For a while, even butterfly open water, long distance swimmer. But now starting this winter, I am going almost every day to the beach in New York to swim in the ocean with my speedo goggles and, and a cap yes and that's it with a group of people like we swim like at the same time but by ourselves it's called cybos coney island and brighton beach open water swimmers and it's amazing like to be in the water like today it was 32 degrees fahrenheit zero degrees celsius the water was 46 Fahrenheit also seven Celsius to have an idea. Olympic pole is is 82, 81 or 25. So people can have an idea. And yes, I was in the ocean swimming and like it's, I I love this experience. I got addicted. So I take the subway, I read in the subway. That's a good thing because I read in the subway and answer the emails, everything. And then I get there in that Russian neighborhood in New York called Brighton Beach. And it's a beach and there are always people there. I know the people already because I've been going there since April. I became friends with those people and they're from everywhere, all kinds of people who love to swim in the ocean. Like I would say 95 to to 100% were swimmers, at least once in their lives high school whatever whatever they all were swimmers but you have people from different ages like most of the people are over 40 and the majority between 50 and 60 i would say more women than men or it's it's it, it's balanced but it's amazing like and then after you you finish then you have to dress really fast because then you have the after drop the risk of hypothermia and then I drink a coffee and come back home, and it's, it's amazing.
0: What about the cold uh, appeals to you versus like just swimming in the ocean in, in general when it's not cold? I,
1: l- I like swimming in the ocean, but the cold, the feeling, the skin, you don't feel cold. You, you have the same feeling as when you put the ice in your shoulder if you get hurt or in your knee. It's the same feeling. So it's like burning. And after a while, you really feel well. You cannot stay long. So today, I spent like less than 20 minutes. I swam around 1K. In the winter, you, you cannot swim for much longer than that. It starts to become dangerous after a while. But like the feeling is really great. Also, being in New York, this city like Sao Paulo, and then you take the subway, you are in the beach, you see the, the birds the winds, the sand, and then you're in the salt water and you have the waves, not big waves, but you have the waves. And also this thing about community, those people who do the same thing. You feel part of something. I love it. I will send a movie that one of them did seven minute movie that's perfect. O'Libman Uh, He's one. He goes every day. Also, like he's what we call year rounder. Year rounder are people who swim over the winter. That's what I want to become. Like I want to swim January and February. That are the toughest days to swim. Like I won't go when it's like 20 degrees Fahrenheit or it's below six below zero. Then, but in the winter days that are not freezing like it's above 32 or above zero celsius yeah i will i will go that's like my plan to manage the swimming during the winter and when i can't then i swim in a swimming pool
0: sure that's cool that's very cool that's uh an interesting hobby to have and yeah not not the first thing you would expect from uh, a brazilian from you know warm weather climate um to get deeply into cold water swimming, but uh, very interesting. One question I used to ask is, is Twitter important to you? Obviously, I know you spend a lot of time on Twitter, you have a ton of followers. I mean, you you have more followers than anybody I've ever spoken to. I guess I'm just curious how you manage your relationship with Twitter, what you think about it, if you think it is toxic and bad, if you think it's great what your opinion is.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's toxic. It's toxic. It's important for journalists to share our work, but it's addictive. And I don't think that's good. I I think it's toxic. If I I was not a journalist, I wouldn't have a Twitter account. And by the way, I might not have even any social media account. I only have because I'm a journalist. Uh, And I know I'm addicted and I use Twitter and Instagram a lot. But I don't think that it's good for my health. I don't think that's good for the health of anyone. I know that's important, especially Instagram, for many business people who use Instagram to sell their products and same applies to Facebook. But for me it's just because I'm a journalist and I have to share my work. I don't understand people who don't need that to to be on Twitter like with all the respect. So, like it's it's my view and I know I'm addicted and I know that I like to be there, but I don't think that it's helpful or health. Maybe there are people who can use Twitter in a healthier way, who don't get addicted, who know how to use it in a better way. At least I don't get in major fights, but I think for me it's not health because I lost too many times. Like I lost time on Twitter that I could be doing things. So you're asking me, About a book about Syria. I think I could have written a book if I was not on Twitter. (laughs) Sure. And that's bad. Like, it's yesterday, so I wrote over 21,000 tweeters in my life. So, and I can't remember a tweet that I wrote yesterday. (laughs) So it's different from an article that you write and it's there. But I know that's important. And on breaking new situations, and also to be in contact, I met a lot of people. I mean, like I was able to be in contact of nice people through Twitter, so it has its its better side. But it's hard. It's it's really it's hard. Yeah. But it's important. Like it's Facebook, I quit. That's the only. Like I'm still there. I have an account on Facebook, and like I use just for the chat with the cold water swimmers. <laughs> but, uh, I don't use the. I don't publish anything on Facebook.
0: Sure. Sure. Then. If you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be?
1: Robert Fisk.
0: Robert Fisk.
1: Yes. The correspondent for The Independent in Beirut, yes.
0: Okay. For people who don't know him, could you tell us a little bit about why?
1: He was the major European correspondent in the Middle East for decades, and he covered everything starting the 70s until he died, I think, last year. It was during the pandemic. He didn't die from COVID, but it was during the pandemic. I don't remember if it was 2000. It was 2020 and 2021. It's almost the same thing for me. But, yeah, and he covered everything. So, yeah, I would say him.
0: Any particular, if people are interested in him, any particular piece of his work?
1: His book about the Lebanese civil war. "Pit the Nation.
0: Cool. And then... What is your most embarrassing journalism-related story?
1: Yeah, when I saw the vice president for Argentina naked uh, on the locker room. <laughs> and, and, like he was going to resign.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And, no, Argentina was always in crisis, but anyway. And he was important at that time. And people wanted to interview him. And I went to swim in... In the place that I always swim, it's a kind of a club. And then when I went to the locker room, he was there. Uh, Carlos Chachalvaris, like. But I didn't ask anything like I was, But I think it would be, I would describe It was the weirdest one moment uh, as a journalist. Yes.
0: You were tempted to go up and question him, though.
1: No, no, I'm not this kind of shy <laughs> in this case. Like it's like he it, he was in his privacy. There was no way that I would. Like in drinks, if he was in the club, I don't know, drinking a uh, uh, soda, coke, in, in, in a table by himself, maybe, but in that case, you know,
0: sure, yeah. Um, I mean, we already talked about Bashar al Assad, but if there's anything else that comes to mind for this question, it's uh, what is the coolest, or weirdest, or strangest situation your job has taken you into? If anything else comes to mind,
1: it's strange. It's always like when you see Ahmadinejad nearby, it's weird. Like, do I cover the General Assembly of the United Nations? Uh, so I always think like when you see a person that it's always there, uh, it's weird. Like when I saw Obama in the 10th anniversary of September 11, uh, so I, it's strange when you're near persons, like that people are talk Not like was it with Assad, because it's different when you were talking, but I think it would be that.
0: Sure, yeah, these more people you see all the time in the media and then seeing them in person, yeah. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? It can be anything related to journalists.
1: Now, book, I would mention the one I said about uh, that, that Robert Fisk wrote, Pick the Nation, but I would also mention Zantan Shadid. The book is House of Stone. It's a book. He, he won the Pulitzer Prize twice covering the war in Iraq. He, he's an American journalist with Lebanese roots and he went back to Lebanon and he decided to buy the house of his grandfather and renovate it. And it's a journalistic book, but it's really nice, even to understand in the Middle East. He he died during the Syrian war.
0: And then qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do?
1: Uh, a sports coach, a team sport coach, like water polo or soccer or whatever. Coach, Yeah, I think that,
0: yes. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Well, uh, I know you're short on time and you've got to rush off to be on TV. So I I just want to say thanks so much for taking the time um, to talk to me and to come on the podcast.
1: No, thank you, Jake.
0: That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Guga Chakra, a New York City-based commentator for Brazil's Global News. I'll post links to some of the things that Guga talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at, at @foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, April 3rd. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.